Welcome to the Higher Ed Huddle, where we discuss the most relevant topics in higher education today. On today's episode, I'm joined by Vienna Morrill. Vienna leads the well-being initiative at Barry Dunn. She has over 10 years of higher education consulting experience and recently completed her master's degree in applied nutrition. Over the past year, Vienna has been focused much of her time on employee well-being here at Barry Dunn, transforming the firm's wellness program into a comprehensive well-being program. She believes that having a deliberate strategy around putting people first is key to the future of work. In this first episode of a two-part series, we will discuss what well-being means, the importance of it, and the trends in higher education. In the second part of the series, Vienna will return and share insights from well-being conversations with stakeholders across higher ed. Welcome, Vienna. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. Uh, your background is somewhat unusual. Um, you started out uh, as an accounting major. You found your way into IT consulting, and then you landed on well-being. How did you come to focus on employee well-being? So that's a good question. I've uh, always been pretty passionate about the pursuit of well-being in my own life. So I'd say things really started there, um, recognizing that the better I felt, the more creative, engaged, focused, and optimistic I could be in my own life, whether as a student, as an athlete, an employee, and now recently as a parent. So through observation and experience, I've also come to appreciate that well-being takes on new meanings and requires different approaches as you go through life. So much of your life is spent at work. So what better avenue for providing the tools and the environmental support for people to be their best, whatever that means for them, both personally and professionally. I've spent most of my 13 years at Barry Dunn focused on IT consulting, but so often I've completed these projects with the realization that while technology can be totally transformative, it doesn't matter if you don't get the people part right. So that means having engaged employees. And when I say engaged, I mean having employees that feel a strong sense of connection to the workplace and have um, pride in their work. That's not something that just happens. It's really something you need to deliberately facilitate. That's great. Um, you mentioned you were an athlete. What type of athlete were you? So my athletic career has varied over the years. Um, I, early on in life, I was a swimmer and then, uh, also went away to ski school. So I've <laughs> some skiing time and, but now later in life, I've really found myself drawn to, uh, running, biking and come back to swimming as well. So athletics have uh, definitely had a strong place in my life for, for as long as I can remember, really. Oh, that's great. Um, this spring, you completed your master's program in applied nutrition. How does that factor into your current focus on well-being? So getting my master's degree in applied nutrition was, I guess, somewhat of a personal passion project, I might call it. Um, but what I realized throughout this program, and really what I was hoping as I did this program, is that I would find a way to weave nutrition into my career. I wasn't quite sure what that would look like, but um, going through that program, I realized that similar to technology, not being, you know, a magic bullet for fixing organizational problems, focusing on diet and exercise alone is not enough for helping someone feel their best. 
when you look at health behavior change theories, um, some of the leading public health models, a common theme is that the importance of meeting people where they're at, you know, recognizing that everyone has different pain points, different barriers, different motivators, really, and that the most successful models are those that really tap into an individual's intrinsic motivation to change. This really got me thinking, how can we apply these theories to help people be their best in and out of the workplace? From that line of thought, along with some leadership support, came the idea of a well-being initiative uh, here at Barry Dunn, and ultimately, hopefully, a well-being practice for our clients. Yeah, that's great. And certainly, with the events this year, this seems to be a topic that's gaining um, a lot of attention. Can you tell me more about the term well-being and why it is important? Yeah, well-being, it's one of those words that I feel like, you know, we all can identify it. We feel like we know what it means, but when we're asked to define it, it's a little tricky. So I actually found a definition through um, the CDC that I really liked, um, which is that well-being is a measure of what people think and feel about their lives. I don't remember the exact definition, but it's, you know, their relationships, how they feel about their emotions and resilience, their ability to realize their potential, um, their overall satisfaction with life. Really, when we feel good about life, we tend to perform better, both personally and professionally. There's this growing appreciation for the connection between business outcomes and the well-being of employees. So intentionally designing well-being programs can help you attract and retain the best talent. Um, and also, you know, we talk about retention, and that's huge. You can think about the fact that replacing a lost employee uh, I think estimates are between 33 and 150% of the employee's compensation um, alone right there. And that doesn't even reflect the impact to morale and productivity uh, when you lose an employee, especially a, an employee who's a, a positive and engaged contributor. So um, research on this topic also suggests that half of voluntary turnover is actually preventable. So you know, well-being can definitely be a way to increase retention um, as well as attract good, uh, talented people. Also improving employee engagement and product productivity. Employee engagement is just such an important element of workplace productivity. In the past, we always talked about the term absenteeism. And today the term is really presenteeism, which is when an employee is physically present but not invested in their work and chronically distracted. So distractions can take many forms. It can be just low energy, it can be financial troubles, feelings of isolation, anxiety, and depression, self-doubt, not having a strong sense of purpose or value creation in their lives. When employees are engaged and connected with the workplace, they are more present, they're more productive, uh, they're more invested in their work. Um, there's also, you know, you asked why it's important and traditionally wellness programs, we can talk about well-being, but wellness programs have focused on reducing healthcare expenditures. And that is still, you know, a legitimate uh, benefit to a, a, an effective well-being program. So healthier employees generally cost less, you know, chronic preventable health conditions and pharmaceuticals 
are often the greatest contributor to an employer's healthcare costs. Yeah, I imagine employee wellness or well-being can have a significant impact on productivity, not just in higher ed, but really in the, any company or industry. You know, employees are, in most cases, the most important asset to a lot of companies. And certainly in higher education, employees, faculty, and staff are important in supporting students. You use the word well-being. I've heard the term wellness as well. What makes a well-being program different from a wellness program? Yeah, so well-being programs really are the new wellness programs. They recognize that there's more to being well than being physically fit and eating well. A well-being program, uh, sole purpose, as we were just talking about, is, is not to just reduce employer healthcare costs. Um, still important, but it's only part of the picture. A well-being program is more holistic and includes multiple dimensions. It recognizes the interdependence between those dimensions. So our physical and mental health, our social connectedness, our financial stability, our sense of value and purpose in our careers. We want employees to feel empowered to be active and incorporate movement into their days, have access to healthy foods and knowledge on how to eat more healthily. Uh, we want people to have mental health and uh, support resources when they need them. We want managers to be equipped to recognize and respond to signs of burnout, and then also to reduce the stigma around mental health dialogue in the workplace. We also want people to feel connected to each other and have a sense of belonging, so that's the social well-being. We want them to have the tools to take control of their finances, and again, that sense of purpose and value in their work and in their lives and really to be able to have that growth mindset that allows them to develop an alignment with that purpose. Most of these things, I'd say, except for with the exception of the movement and the healthy foods, um, most of these things fall outside the realm of that traditional wellness program. I think that's a really important distinction. And uh... I'm curious, what, what are the greatest challenges for well-being programs that you can share? So what I've observed to date, and I guess I'd start by saying initially, I really thought that gaining buy-in from executive leadership and management would be the greatest challenge. Mm -hmm. And I still believe this is probably true in certain environments. But for many workplaces, this shift has already occurred. People know this stuff is important. I think this recognition has been coming. And that, and if they didn't realize it eight months ago, COVID has certainly thrust it into the spotlight. So if it's not buy-in, what is it? Um, so if it's not buy-in, you know, I'd say, I, I guess I'm thinking back to IT consulting. And we often talked about um, my experience with IT consulting, we often talk about IT not just being the job of the IT department, especially when it comes to setting strategic direction. And the same can be said of well-being. Well-being is not just the job of HR or even a chief well-being officer, if you happen to have one. Uh, well-being is a collaborative effort, tangible benefits like nutrition counseling, healthy eating webinars, mental health services, you know, your, your, policies, maybe meditation perks, these things tend to come from HR in the form of like, you know, formal benefits packages. However, the cultural shifts 
equipping managers to be well-being champions for their teams, monitoring and responding to burnout, supporting employee development in a way that aligns with their interests, values, and passions, encouraging people to take movement or exercise breaks during the day. These shifts happen at the unit or department level. So coordination, collaboration, communication, really integrating well-being into the culture and into the nature of work itself, that's no small task. Um, so I would say that's, that's probably the greatest challenge of all. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You, you mentioned various dimensions of well-being. What dimensions do you sense organizations are struggling with the most? So in the midst of COVID, I'd say mental well-being is definitely emerging as a need. And I think many employers are doing a, a pretty good job of that, but there's also, there's also uncharted territory. And I think some are struggling with how to best navigate it. You know, burnout is a particular challenging topic um, as it often relates to workload. And we know so many of our clients have employees who are burning the candle at both ends right now. You know, they're, they're feeling more stressed at home and at work. So in the immediate term, I think managers and supervisors need to be proactively managing for burnout while also making sure not to burn out themselves. So this means setting a good example. I mean, I, schedule, I regularly schedule time in my calendar for, you know, take going out for a run. I think just time and nature, getting outside movement is really important. Um, revisiting goals and timelines, keeping open lines of communication, checking in often, making visible efforts to respond when employees indicate distress. Um, longer term, this is also where traditional consulting services, I think of you know, our business process improvement, our organizational assessments can help identify opportunities to create efficiency, um, alleviate workload where warranted, while also finding new ways for employees to create value for the organization. Um, this is, you know, really a win-win proposition for the organization and the employee, which is ultimately where the future of work is going. I mean, this gets to the concept of uh, stakeholder capitalism and really doing what's best for the employee, for your customers, for, you know, the greater uh, community at large. So um, I think, what it all comes back to though is you know really putting the human first i came across an analogy the other day of treating high employee uh, high performing employees like elite athletes so you know you give an, an elite athlete intense periods of uh, training but then you give them time for rest and recovery um, we should be doing the same thing for our employees. We should be giving them challenging work assignments, but recognizing that sustained growth requires, requires periods of rest and recovery. And that can look different for different people. Um, this can be difficult when resources are tight and there's so much uncertainty on the horizon, but it's something we just, we, we need to commit to it. I think that's so important. Um, that point there, certainly a key takeaway for, you know, as, as we focus on higher education. I think IT leaders, as well as leaders outside of IT can really take that as an opportunity really to ensure that they're proactively managing um, employee burnout and ensuring that uh, engagement levels 
are at a point where you know they're able to meet the um, the needs of of students, for example, or even the the needs of faculty and staff as they navigate through um, this new um, this new way of of teaching and learning. Certainly, um, in my conversations with IT leaders, that's been a big concern um, with the added uh, workload on their employees, and so. That certainly is a topic um, that is um, front and center. And I think the point that you made there is really important. What trends, uh, you know, as we kind of transition more towards higher ed, uh, what are some trends that you're seeing related to well being? Uh, so in higher ed, I think, um, <laughs> like probably every other industry out there, COVID has certainly brought well being into the forefront of the conversation. I'd say that um, even before COVID came along, uh, many institutions were talking about and, and dealing with a crisis around student mental health in particular. Um, so I, I know there was a lot of attention to that and I think student well-being still sits at the forefront of thinking. And as you were just talking about, Joe, I mean, the needs, the need, everybody's trying to, so hard to be responsive to the needs of students and I think the needs are new and different and they're evolving um, and we're kind of like learning as we go. So I think the student mental health is really challenging, but there's also an increased recognition for the need to better support faculty and staff well-being. Um, a truly transformative well-being program, I think considers all three of these populations and weaves well-being into the culture of the institution. Um, and that means coming up with a strategy that allows you to use your resources in a way that advances um, all, well-being for all three of those populations. So I think in some ways higher ed is actually ahead of the curve when it comes to well-being because there's already so much focus on creating value over efficiency. I mean, higher ed by its nature is a mission-driven um, organization. And, you know, I think that there's a embedded, um, sense of purpose because of that. No well-being benefit will compensate for a negative work environment. Um, so having that, that purpose um, can really go a long way for hiring in particular and kind of gives them a leg up. Um, but I think that, yeah, the, it's important to think beyond well-being benefits. You can have the most you know, the best and most exciting well-being benefits out there and employees experience of those benefits will be dictated by the culture of their department and their team and the nature of their work. So I do think, you know, my experience with working with clients, we have seen that where overall the higher environment is quite positive, but there are definitely pro uh, pockets within institutions where people are struggling, um, you know, bringing it back to burning. That's definitely an, uh, a challenge for many people right now. Um, and there's just so much uncertainty in higher ed in general right now. I think that for institutions, there's visible steps they can take to demonstrate to staff and students alike that you value their well-being. Um, as financial pressures mount, which I'm sure they will, I guess I would just urge institutions to keep well-being a priority and to recognize well-being as essentially another form of currency to keep faculty, students, and staff engaged. Um, and while it does require resources and investment, that investment can be scaled while still having a notable impact. It's going to be interesting to see what what uh, 
you know, what happens over the next year as there's more focus on supporting um, employees during this time, but also um, what the new normal looks like, wh whatever that may be. But I think um, there will be a need for supporting a different way of operating, a different way of working, a different way of supporting um, these organizations. So it, it will be interesting. And I think, you know, some of the points that you've shared, I think um, we'll, we'll certainly see these uh, focuses. And I can only hope that um, organizations are, you know, working their way uh, through planning or at least having conversations on campus about well-being programs, because I think they're so important. And so this kind of leads me to my final question is, what advice do you have for institutions getting started in developing well-being programs? So I guess my advice would be um, to start by, start by defining your business challenges. Um, you know, rather than just going, just, just going straight at it as, okay, we need a well-being program and it needs to have these components and, I would, I would actually start by thinking about your business challenges because the two are often so closely interlinked um, and your business challenges will tell you a lot about what your people need right now. I would also focus on securing executive leadership buy-in and hopefully you will find that easier than expected, which in my experience, um, but then shift your attention to managers. Managers have such an important role um, in well-being and promoting that culture. Any work around well-being should be closely tied to your institution vision and culture. Um, again, that's similar to thinking about the business challenges. You really wanna make sure your well-being program is, is tailored to the needs of your institution. Um, there's just, because there are so many ways you can invest in well-being benefits. I mean, the, the reality is that this is a, um, a growing industry and lots of there's lots of offerings around well-being right now so you need to make smart investment decisions to make sure um, you know you you have a program that aligns with the positive aspects of your culture and really helps um, support that part of your culture and grow it um, I'd also say if you need help reach out there's you know resources out there and I love this topic and I would welcome anyone who wants to reach out and have a discussion about the well-being needs of their own institution to, to do so. Yeah, I think, I think the timing of this conversation is really relevant to where we find ourselves uh, as a society and certainly in higher education. Um, there's so much change culturally and uh, from a technology standpoint, just in the way we're delivering uh, education and how we support that. And so I, I really appreciate you uh, joining me today and I wanna thank you. And I look forward to having you back for the second part of the series on such an important topic. I look forward to that as well, Joe. And I'd say if there's any institutions out there that would like to participate in those conversations around well-being that we'll be having, um, so please reach out, I'd love to chat. That's great, thank you. Um, you can find our podcast on SoundCloud, Google, and Apple iTunes. Until then, check back next month for another great topic and a great guest. Thanks and stay well.